Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Eat Real to Heal podcast, where I am your host, Nicolette Richet, and today we have a beautiful, incredible guest, Susanna Meadows, who we have had on our show before. She was actually one of the very first people we did a podcast with about two years ago now, where she recounted the story of her son being diagnosed at the age of three with juvenile idiopathic arthritis. So idiopathic meaning doctors don't know what's causing it, arthritis, inflammation in the joints, in the bones, and around all the tissues of the body, and juvenile being young. So it affected her three-year-old son. And it was devastating diagnosis, a lot of pain for her child, an entire year of the disease not getting better, despite all the best of the best medications that her son was taking. And it was when she decided to listen to a woman from a year earlier who had said, hey, change his diet, that she was able to get relief and reprieve of the disease and her son was able to fully heal. And her boys now are no longer little boys. She has identical, genetically identical twin boys and they are years and years older now and she tells the story of what that's like to raise young preteen children and what it's like, uh, her journey in having gone through that years ago and what her life looks like now, how she continues to feed her family, nutrify her family. But in addition to that, Susanna is back on the podcast because I can talk to this woman forever. She is a game changer. She is a worldview changer. She is a life changer. She tells stories. And in her ability to tell stories as the brilliant author that she is, she is the author of The Other Side of Impossible, Ordinary People Who Face Daunting Medical Challenges and Refuse to Give Up. Please go out and get her book because it is incredible. And she opens you up to eight brilliant stories of people who said no. I'm not going to accept this diagnosis. I'm not going to accept these medications as being the only answer. And they went out there and they found results in challenging the status quo, in looking at alternative ways of healing. And that's exactly what they did. And Susanna's brilliant recapping of these stories in her book, The Other Side of Impossible, really inspired me to never accept anybody's opinion as the final word. It's always about getting a second opinion, a third opinion, a fourth fourth opinion, and believing in the impossible. And when you do that, you can reclaim your health, you can reclaim your life. So in our podcast, we discuss her new book that she's writing about persistence. Persistence is all about continuing in the face of adversity and we discuss her new book in great detail. We also get to dive into stories that she shares of kids that have healed themselves of ADHD, doctors that have healed themselves of multiple sclerosis, and really, truly, this all comes back to that living, giving power of persistence. So I really hope you enjoyed this podcast. One thing that I want you to know is that It took Susanna about a year to discover the food as medicine piece. And one of the things that we have coming up on the richer health side 
at our retreat center is an incredible three-month program. It's our nutrition and detox coaching program where we teach you everything that Susanna discovered in a year. We teach it to you in three months. You get to experience the power of healing your own body. You get to experience the power of teaching other people how to heal their own body. You have to do 12 case studies. You do researching, writing, uh, blog writing. There is a final exam at the end, but I guarantee we teach you the information so well that you are going to thrive in this program. Even if you haven't been to school in 20 years, even if you never graduated from university, even if you have no knowledge about food as medicine or nutrition or chemistry or biochemistry, we give you a plethora of resources that allow you to learn in whatever capacity is your learning style. So if you're an auditory learner, we have tons of resources for you. If you're a kinesthetic or a spatial learner, we give you those resources as well. If you're visual and love to read, don't worry, we'll have a ton of reading that you can do. But we make sure you have access to all of the science, all of the research that food is medicine. And I really download 22 years of my knowledge into you in three months so that you can go out there and be a game changer like Susanna. We teach you how to really be empowered with the knowledge that food is medicine so that no matter what you want to do with that information, you'll be able to go out there and share it with the world and really help other people heal. And ultimately, when we help people heal with food, we help them heal the planet as well. So it all goes hand in hand. So I hope you sign up for our nutrition and detox coaching program. It kicks off in September at our nutrition and wellness detox center, which is in Pemberton, British Columbia. We have, it's our sixth training that we've run. We've graduated well over 30 students who are dynamites in the industry. I love the work that they're doing to help other people. So you could be one of those people too. So sign up today. It's a small group. It's an intimate group. We want you to be part of it. So check out our website at richerhealth.ca. We'll also have a new website out soon as well, which we'll be sharing with you. So please make sure you sign up for our newsletter, share this information with other people. And now let's dive in to the podcast with brilliant, gorgeous, intelligent, inspiring Susanna Meadows. And let us know what you think about her show. Please write to us. If you have any questions with Susanna, you can reach out to her as well. Let us know what you think of the show. And again, share it with people who need to learn about the healing power of food. Enjoy. Um, what are some other things that have happened since the last time we chatted? Um, let's see. Well, I, I have been working. It's kind of interesting. I have been working on one of the, one of the takeaways from, from working on my book was this sort of lesson about persistence. Right. And I find that I'm still not done with the, the idea of persistence that I just, I'm still so fascinated by it and I still want to understand how people get it. And so, um, I'm working on a new story about people, uh, a new book about people. I mean, and it, you, it's not obvious how it connects to my previous book because it's not about health, but it's about people 
two yeah. men who were wrongfully imprisoned um, and who got through long sentences um, who didn't deserve to, even though they didn't deserve to be there. But the idea, I just, I remain fascinated by like how, how do people get through things when the odds are impossible? Um, and that, I think that's just, um, that's a kind of takeaway, I think, from having worked on my book where I told these stories of people who just, who had hope when they probably, when they had no business having hope. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, I love that. And it, to me, it sounds like it completely relates to your last book, you know, and yeah. I mean, and even as you were saying that the way you were talking about the word persistence makes me like you were like lighting up like a Brene Brown talking about vulnerability or shame or things like that. So I just yeah. love that as well. Um, and yeah, no, I definitely see how it connects to your, your book. I mean, because that's exactly what you absolutely needed to have. Right. And, but where does that come from? Like, you know, we know that right. for with your situation, there's probably like thousands of other moms out there who were in exactly the same situation, but they were like, it, eh, you know, like I'll resign to what the doctors tell me. And, right. you know, there was, they didn't have that persistence bone, you know, right. or, right. so yeah. Yeah. I think I got lucky in that I had had some practice, you know, being a reporter, you kind of learn persistence, right? I mean, it's sort of, you kind of have to keep hammering away at people to get them to talk to you. And so I had, had a little practice with that where I, you know, you just, you, I knew to ask questions, to keep asking questions, keep asking questions. Um, yeah. And uh, so that did come in handy um, when we were dealing with Shepard's illness. Have been plugging away at this new book, which is super exciting. Yeah. I mean, as you know, it's hard to, um, it's hard to find a story um, that, I mean, for me to write a book, I have to really, it's just hard for, to find a story that's good enough to want to spend that much time with this, to spend that much time with it. So it took me a while to get a good idea. And I am so excited to be working on it finally. Um, and I've just been, I've been writing. I, in fact, I just read a book and I interviewed the author um, and you will appreciate this because it, it's about a woman. It doesn't involve um, really, I mean, it's, it's different from our stories, but this is a woman who had a terrible infection and she, um, as a result, um, and she went into sepsis and her organs started failing. And when she woke up from a coma, she was paralyzed. She couldn't speak. She couldn't do anything. She couldn't communicate. But what she talks about is how when she was, recovering she was in the rehab center and she was still in a wheelchair and she sees one man in the rehab center who's walking around and she she says to her nurse who is that man how did he do that <laughs> i want to do that and you know she said everyone else is in a wheelchair this one guy's walking and it turned out he had had the same illness that she had and she this woman is a scientist she's a danish scientist and but she talks about how seeing an example of one, you know, she sees one person who does it. And she, that for her, that was the turning point. And that's relates to what I know you, you think about and what I certainly have thought about of just sharing a single story of success is everything. I mean, to, to somebody who needs hope, um, and I thought it was very interesting to hear that from a scientist who, and, and I, you know, I certainly, you know, we all 
want good evidence for things and we all, and that's important and we understand that, but it doesn't mean that stories of success, single stories of success aren't important in a different way. And, and like all you need is that one story, right? And so I thought that was really significant um, and interesting. And she talked about how like that was it for her. Like she, she knew she, he could do it, she could do it. Um, and isn't that the way like everything has always been done? Like the one minute mile, when everybody realized you can run the one minute mile, everybody then went and did it. But until right. then, nobody would do it. Right. And it's why I love always chatting with you is because of the fact that you are a storyteller. And yesterday we just had T. Colin Campbell on our podcast. Uh-huh. And have you read the China study? I haven't, but so tell me about it. Okay, so you definitely need to read the China study. Like you will fall in love with it, I know, based on everything you've gone through, you know, with your son. And, um, and you know, uh, Dr. T. Colin Campbell, he's a PhD, he's a biochemist, and, you know, he's one of the leading um, scientists out there. And in fact, his children and his grandchildren, who are all adults now, they're all medical doctors or, you know, health practitioners that are doing, you know, clinical trials actually on um, food as medicine for whether it's heart disease or, Thank you God. know, running retreats in, um, in the Dominican Republic where they show people the connection between food production and in the environment and what it's doing and how a plant-based lifestyle is, um, you know, it is truly needed for the planet to survive, not just human right. species to survive. Right. So Dr. T. Colin Campbell, I mean, he's quite well known in the plant-based world. And he, so we just had him on the show and I was felt so fortunate because, I mean, this man is a legend. Mm-hmm. And, but he said that yesterday, he's, because I was like, how are we going to do this? You've been doing this for decades. And, you know, it feels like we haven't even made a dent in the medical system. We have not made a dent. And it's, you know, individuals like yourself, you know, that have to struggle to find the answers, you know, to turn your son's health around. And we doubt ourselves as mothers. We doubt ourselves as researchers because we're like, well, is this what we're reading accurate? And at the end of the day, he's like, you just got to keep sharing the information and telling stories. He's like, these podcasts are the way we do it. You writing a book is the way to do it. You know, using those journalistic, journalistic, is that the word? Skills and resources (laughs) and tools that you have is truly such a gift because storytelling is an art that will save people's lives. Well, I think what you've done, Nicolette, I mean, this is the thing, like when you went through what you went through and it was such a revelation to you, right? That you could, you, you were, I mean, I know that you felt like, how, how does everyone not know this? How yeah. does everyone not know this? Uh, and, and certainly I went through the same thing, but then what I love about what you've done is that you have, it transformed your life, right? Where you just, it, you made it your life's work to get those stories out there. And I, I respect that so much, but that's what it takes. Yeah, it is what it takes. And it's interesting because we've been meeting with all these consultants who have said, you know, we looked at the green mustache and they're looking at us from a marketing perspective, trying to figure out how we can help, how they can help, um, you know, spread the message of what we're doing and let people know about our restaurants. And everybody comes back and they're like, oh my God, your story's amazing, but it's not out there. And so just that art, you know, that ability to tell stories is pretty profound. Um, and yeah, it's something we're learning how to do. And I love that you're writing a book because books, again, are another amazing way to get that story out there. So your last book, The Other Side of Impossible, which for any listeners who are out there right now listening to this, um, uh, Susanna Meadows wrote this brilliant book, which is a compilation of eight stories. Is that correct? On eight different individuals? 
Uh, I think that's right. <laughs> I know it off the top of my head. It's either seven or eight. <laughs> right. Um, stories of these individuals who, you know, really faced, um, well, I mean, why don't I let you tell the story because I'll end up going on about every story, but, um, why don't you tell the story? And then I want you to also let people know what your next book is about. Cause I'm very okay. excited to read that. Um, so, um, it started um, not as a book project, but my son, um, when he was three, was diagnosed with juvenile arthritis, an autoimmune disease. And at the time, we were told that he this was something he would not recover from, that he would be medicated, need to be medicated for life um, with immune suppressing drugs um, that we quickly found out made him sick and came with risks in terms of uh, raising your risk of lymphoma down the road and that kind of thing. And um, the main, the sort of immediate problem was that he felt sick taking these drugs. And I just obviously, as any parent can relate, could not accept that he was going to be sick for the rest of his life. Um, and if we took him off the medication, there was a risk of his joints um, becoming um, really immobile um, from inflammation. And, and of course, just the persistent pain of having inflammation. Anyway, we heard a story about a mother whose child had the same thing and that she had changed her son's diet and that he had recovered from juvenile arthritis. And so we thought, and I was immediately skeptical and thought, well, if this kind of thing really works, then we would be hearing about it from our doctor. And, um, and so I, I was skeptical, but I was also desperate. <laughs> so, so I was, I, and, and there was no harm in trying. That was the thing. I mean, taking certain foods out of shepherd's diet, um, gluten and dairy, which um, this other mom told me might be what was causing the problem, um, a sensitivity to those foods. And so we thought, well, we might as well give it a shot. There's this one child recovered. Maybe that's hope for us. Um, and Shepard, six, we, so we followed exactly what this other mom did. She didn't know me from a hole in the wall. She was just this kind woman who was willing to talk to me on the phone. And um, I just took notes. I, took, I jotted down exactly what she did. She gave her son high doses of omega-3s. Um, she gave him probiotics. She reduced and I think pretty much eliminated his sugar intake and took gluten and dairy out of his diet and we said okay we'll give it a shot so six weeks later um i went into shepherd's room he was three at the time and was in so much pain um, from his arthritis that i had been going into his room to help him out of bed in the morning he was having trouble getting out of bed and i went in there after six weeks on this experiment he was already standing up and he said mommy my knees don't hurt anymore anyone running out of the room. And I, at the moment, did not come up with any words. <laughs> Must have felt like a miracle. Well, yeah, I mean, I just, I truly, I think I had never really believed that it was gonna work. I think my, I was thinking, well, we have to try it because we, we don't have a choice not to. But I certainly didn't have faith that it would work. Um, so it was, uh, and I, and there and there was also just this feeling of well then like if this thing if this if the thing we tried is the thing that worked then how do people not know about this yeah. so that was sort of the beginning and I ended up feeling that I had an obligation to tell that story um, because I'm a reporter I I was able to um, so I wrote 
that story for the New York Times Magazine, thinking that um, if, if I, you know, that, that would have been a great benefit to me to have come across an article saying, hey, this is this thing we tried and it may have helped our child. Um, I, wanted, I wanted to, you know, there was no way of knowing exactly how we helped him or what it was that helped him or, you know, but the fact is there was a chance that what we did may have, may have been the thing that helped him and saved him. And so I just felt that I could not sit on that information. Um, anyway, so the, the piece in the Times ran. Um, and, and as I was working on that story, I kept hearing other stories. Um, I was, cause I was talking to different doctors and different researchers, mostly researchers actually, who were, who, who seemed to have more interest right. <laughs> in, yeah. in sort of, um, new ideas and, uh, and also to just sort of have, I, I found that there was a kind of creativity and a kind of, and an openness to, um, different answers and so as I was talking to different researchers and trying to understand, you know, how is it that this might have helped Shepard recover, I started hearing about people who were overcoming these illnesses that were supposedly incurable. And I just, uh, you know, I heard about a woman who had MS and her MS had advanced to such a stage that she was using a wheelchair every day. And then she took it upon herself to try and find a solution for herself. Meanwhile, she's tried everything that medicine has to offer. There's no medication that can help her at this stage, but she decides I'm going to figure it out, <laughs> which to me was the most interesting thing. Like where, where do you get that? Where do you get that confidence that, okay, the best minds have, are working on this and they don't have an answer, but I'm going to figure it out. Um, so I knew that I, I knew that I had to meet this woman um, she's another person who changed her diet. She started eating 12 cups a day of fruits and vegetables. Um, she also um, gave herself, she um, stimulated her muscles um, to contract um, since her brain was no longer doing that job effectively. She used one of those um, E-STEM machines um, on high. <laughs> anyway, uh, within six months, she was riding her bike again. And, and that's so, Dr. Terry Walls, right? Dr. Terry Walls. He's so a I, medical doctor. Like that's the part I love that story and that you shared that with so many people because, you know, she's a, she was a researcher and a medical doctor, but she's apparently just received like millions in dollars in grants funding, FDA approved um, funding to do her trials. Well, that's the thing. I mean, when, yeah. so when she recovered and she, and that, and that, that is the word that her neurologist uses that she recovered she went from using a wheelchair to riding her bike again she has recovered she still has a mess but she has recovered yeah all of her function and she so but she knew that for for her to have any impact or for to she knew that she would have to study this so that other people could be helped by it she understood the impasse in medicine that you know we need evidence and 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 if there's not evidence that something works doctors aren't going to be talking about it um so she got to work, and um, and as you said, she's she's been able to get funding. And some of her early trials um, have shown a lot of success, which is what's so thrilling. Um, one of the early ones, she talks about um, half of the people 
um, responding positively, recovering some kind of function after they changed their diet following what she did. So I think her story, and by the way, it was her son when I was, when I was meeting with her son and I said, what made your mom think <laughs> that she could do this? Like what gave, like it, it takes so much nerve. Yeah. And uh, his response was so great. He said, courage is knowing you're licked and doing it anyway. Wow. That is such a great explanation. Um, and I, and so anyway, so her, I ended up telling her story in my book and then the stories of other people who, who similarly took it upon themselves to find solutions when there weren't any. Um, and so, and I, and I think that getting back to what we were saying earlier, I think that hearing those stories, just a single story. Um, and I think it was also Terry Wallison who said, all you need is one. I mean, that's, that's all you need is one. And I, I, I think that we need to know what is possible without, and you know, without making any sort of promises, you know, we can't say, we can't say, Oh, if you do this, you will get better. We don't have, we don't have enough information, I think, at this point. Um, but but we can be realistic. We can say, look, it's possible. Here, you know, this is. It may not work. I mean, I I don't. I know the the thing I took away from working on the book is that I no longer believe in the concept of false hope. I don't. I, I hope is hope, and and I think we have a responsibility to be honest about what you know how likely something is. But the fact is, um, just because we have not done clinical trials of something doesn't mean that we can't talk about possibilities. Exactly, which is such a great name for your book, right? The Other Side of Impossible. Um, well, I, and it's been interesting because over this past year, I've met so many people who have done what you did with your son. And, and just going back, just so people understand, you have two genetically identical boys. Right. And only right. one of them had this condition, right? Yes. And the other one didn't have the idiopathic juvenile arthritis. And the most amazing part in the book that I just remember like being such in awe of, of the fact that, you know, you changed your one son's diet, the one who was ill and, you know, he wasn't growing as fast as his twin. And then he mm -hmm. changed his diet and then he outgrew the other one. And right. like, that is just, that in itself, like researchers around the globe should be jumping on that. And it, we interviewed somebody else on our podcast, Akiho and her son, Sosuke, because she, you would love to interview her because her story is so similar to yours. And it was, you know, she went on Google, she typed in, you know, how do you um, uh, wean a Down syndrome child off of a feeding tube? And, you know, her son, Sosuke, you know, she wanted, she knew that it was possible. She came across this woman's story. I don't even remember where in the world she lived. And she saw that this woman had managed to do it. And the doctors here are like, no, you won't be able to do it. She wasn't getting support. Nobody wanted her support her on it. So she just took the chance. Yeah. And she did. But also what was so cool is when he started eating like these juices and soups and real food, all of a sudden his teeth came in. He learned how to walk and talk. He grew exponentially. It's like he caught up with himself as a result of being able to get nutrients, which is, you know, just reminded me so much of your story. And then another story that I just think you'll love so much, and I'm going to have to find this woman's name, but she 
is an engineer who ended up having a daughter who had this rare, rare autoimmune disorder that really like when you get diagnosed, you live five years with it. Mm. And so this engineer woman who never studied medicine, Mm -hmm. she did the same thing you did. She did the same thing that Dr. Terry Walls did. And she said, I'm going to find the answer. Right. And she just assembled these minds, these people and said, okay, here's the disease. Here's the mechanisms of the disease. Like what would we need to do to stop it? And she ended up finding the cure, which has now saved thousands of kids' lives all around the world. Wow. Wow. And that's the thing. It's up to us. I mean, I mean, what choice do you have? What choice do you have? Yeah. And I also think that that, that mindset of I'm going to find the answer and I am confident I will find the answer. I, I don't have proof of this, but I, I don't see how that does not have health benefits in itself. Right. I mean, we know that placebo effect occurs or is likely to occur if we are confident that we are doing something that's going to make us better. Like that is, that's the placebo effect. We know it's real. We know that it occurs and we know that it, it is actually the, you know, the majority of, of a sort of positive effect is, is attributable to placebo effect. If we take a drug, it's, you know, we, you know, a large part of that benefit um, comes from that mindset. So when you think about these people who are just so determined and they're going to find an answer and they know they're going to get better, it does make me think that there is something that I just, I just can't believe that there is not some benefit health benefit to that, to just that belief alone. Um, Because we see it all the time. I mean, that's what we see it in every single study that we ever do um, that that matters that just like that confidence The trick, of course, is like getting it. (laughs) And that's what I wanted to ask you. So, you know, because I know your your next book is really, you know, it's about that persistence and where does that come from? And is that a genetic quality or a personality trait? Or, you know, where does this drive to find the answer? And you kind of, you know, led, you kind of, you mentioned the word you're fascinated, you know? So, um, and I think that, would you say that has a lot to do with it? It's being curious and fascinated. I think so. And I also think, well, in my case, I think it was desperation. (laughs) I mean, really, like, I I really think that I was totally desperate. I I wasn't, I couldn't accept as none of us can having a sick child. I would just, that was not going to be his life. And, um, and I think that that for me was the driver. Um, I tried to find an answer. I did research. I tried to find an answer. Where does persistence come from? Because there are people who haven't, some people who don't. There's not, there, like, we, we, it hasn't been studied enough to really be able to give a good answer, but there is some research that, that suggests that it can, it, it can start, if you have an experience early in life of overcoming difficulty, and I mean, this is partly also just common sense, like, like, like if you have this experience of overcoming difficulty that you then retain that, um, you will retain determination going forward in your life. I mean, the only research that's been done has been done on mice. But what's interesting is that they, when they're adolescents and they overcome a difficult circumstance in the case of the mice, it was like being their tails being shocked. (laughs) And if they were then able to turn off, they were able to turn off that shock that that basically 
it gave them, it wired them for hope. I mean, it wired them going forward until they died. They never gave up. I mean, isn't that incredible? <laughs> it's like amazing. Yeah. yeah. And they've, they've even sort of narrowed it down. They've like identified the brain circuit that sort of, that, that gets um, established once you've, once you overcome this difficult circumstance. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. Um, and that you are wired then that way. Yeah. And this is, I mean, I love that we're having this conversation today because that's exactly one of the questions that I was talking to Dr. T. Colin Campbell about as well. It's like, you know, this man has been, he's faced so much difficulty, like with having grant money taken away when they realized that he wanted to study food as medicine with not being given, you know, millions of dollars um, that they said that they were going to give him and then just saying, no, we're not giving it to you because it doesn't fall into the research we want you to do because you're studying food as medicine. Um, And then he's persisted all of these years. I mean, and he has even worse stories and we started exchanging I went and taught physicians in China last summer. And at the end, one of our team members got a death threat. Um, You know, we've had fake letters sent to our restaurant from like the FDA, which doesn't exist in Canada, saying you can't use the word healthy. We're going to shut you down. Oh, my gosh. Right. But so so I'm curious because, I mean, I'm obviously – you know, many, you know, chronological years younger than Dr. T. Colin Campbell. That man is so young, truly in spirit. Um, Uh And, but he still persists. And part of me is like, man, I'm tired from fighting the fight, right? (laughs) But for some reason, I can't give up. And this man never gave up. Dr. Max Gerson, who, you know, I teach the Gerson therapy. He was put through the ringer and journalists were fired if they interviewed Max Gerson and spoke about food as medicine back in the thirties and forties and fifties. Wow, wow. But still he persisted. Right. Right. Well, I bet, I mean, I feel, I mean, when I first wrote my story for about Shepard in the New York times, boy, did we get it. I mean, it was, there was a response that was, it was pretty evenly divided between positive and negative, but boy, were people angry. And how can you talk about this? This isn't science, blah, blah, blah. It didn't matter that I was very careful in my language to say, here's what we know, here's what we don't know. That didn't matter. There's a real knee-jerk response, as you know, to talking about some of this stuff. But the fact is there were people who I heard from, and I'm sure this is the case with you, and I'm sure it's the case with other people, where you hear one story of success, right? Like, and I sort of felt like, you know what, if there's a single person who benefits from this information, I'm done. Like I have done my job. That is is the measure. And so I, I, my guess is that that is the case with your doctor and with your work where you, you know, you, you hear from a single person and you have, you've done, you know, that's it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, is that why you keep going? Oh, oh, it is. And I like, I swear there's this invisible hand on my back that keeps pushing me forward. And, you know, in, in times when I'm like, you know, exhausted from everything, um, even Dr. Zach Bush, we interviewed him and he said the same thing. He said, you know, when he's exhausted and he's doing the same work, it's, he moved from cancer research to food as medicine clinic in Maryland. And, you know, he's um, doing soil regeneration. And he talked about on the podcast, which I was really shocked to hear, because every time you see him on social media, like the man's 
gorgeous and upbeat and you know and of course behind the scenes like he's facing all the same things we all are which is life and why are we doing this and why are we fighting so hard to get these messages across and yeah and he has his motivator which is you know he talks about that in our podcast and the same with me as I went into our cafe one day when I was like why am I doing this like just go work in a bank you know like you make <laughs> so much more money and less stress and you know a woman came up to me and she just put her arms around me and started crying and said I read your book I implemented everything you said and it's the first time since she was 14 that she was free from pain from endometriosis and that she was off all of her meds and wow. she cried because her doctors had said she'd be on these meds for life right Right, right. And of course, I left my restaurant, came back to the office, and I'm like supercharged. I'm like, everybody, let's get back to work. We've got work to do. Yeah. One story. Right, right. That's enough. It is. It is enough. And so, with, so I'm so curious. Um, and I know I said this at the beginning when we were first chatting, but when you talk about the word persistence, you know, I, and the way you are fascinated by it, that you're curious about it, you do sound like Brene Brown when she talks about um, mm -hmm. shame and vulnerability. And, you know, and I, I think it's all of us being curious about just even one thing, like one word, and that can advance society in just such huge, bold, profound ways. And I really can't wait for this next book to come out. Like, I'm, I'm so fascinated. Um, <laughs> are you going to be interviewing people who are persistent drivers like who, how who's feeding the where's the content coming from are you doing actual like academic research diving deep into the data or is it a mix of both well having having already dived divin dough i don't know what the word <laughs> <laughs> already I uh, words. divin is well, great <laughs> i already uh um tried to find you know i already went through the literature i already talked to the researchers all, all the experts to try and find this answer to like where does persistence come where does persistence come from and um and there's really like, so little there's that one mouse study literally i mean there's just i mean there's just we don't know i mean i talked to angela duckworth who wrote the book about grit called yeah. grit and I mean, that was her answer. She said, we don't know. We're trying to find out. We don't know where it comes from. We know that it is a huge factor in success, yeah. um, more than intelligence, more than social standing, all that stuff. Um, but, but that is the sort of question that people, and they are pursuing it. Um, so for this next book, I want, again, just kind of want to focus on the the story of individuals and mm -hmm. because i think and as you as i know you think too the power of a of a narrative um to sort of show what's possible um is is well great and i also and that's also sort of what i know how to do i know how to tell stories so i i just heard um about two men and and who were in prison um, for murders they didn't commit. And, um, and I, and I, I mean, I want to know everything about, I want to know everything. I want to, like, how do you get through day one? Yeah. I mean, I just, so, so that's where the, the story will start is just sort of how they, it's just really how they got through it. Um, because as a way to try and answer that question of, of where, where that comes from. Um, so you remind me of, oh, here it is. Have you read Dr. Victor Frank or Victor, yeah, Dr. Frank, Victor Frankel's book, Man's Search for Meaning? No, but I, I think I should. 
I think so, because I think you're going to find lots of answers in this book because he writes um, about men, about being in the Holocaust. He was a psychologist or psychiatrist uh -huh. in, um, in the Holocaust, living in the concentration camps. And he, I mean, just your questions are so similar to his in that, how, why do some people survive and why do they keep going and why right. don't they throw themselves into the electric fences like everybody else does and how do they get through it? So I, there's some answers in there. I mean, his is all about making meaning out of terrible situations, uh -huh. which, you know, we know is one answer. I don't think it's necessarily what you're talking about with persistence because yours is like, you know, it sounds to me like yours is about going after something, you know, like where, whether it's just time, like these men in prison, you know, like right. just getting through time and what keeps them going. But I think that's definitely one. And it's such a quick read. It's so beautiful. Um, yeah, that could be one. And then the other thing that I think another team that you could talk to is the Shervai team. Okay. And I'm they wrote um, the Alzheimer's Solution. Okay. I know that book. I yeah. And they're in Linda Loma. And the only reason I bring them up, it's because of one line in a Rich Roll podcast that they did with Rich Roll. And the, I guess one of his, his nine-year-old daughter or something said, where does motivation come from? Oh, wow. Huh. And, and the dad's response for? was, it's by having little successes every day. Or oh, wow. not every day, but just having successes. And you have that success and that becomes your drive to have another, you know, success or positive experience. And so I don't know if it's the same thing, but I just thought you just reminded me about those two people. Well, that's, I think that's really useful information but then I think well then what if you have no success yeah <laughs> where like what, what then how do you even get started well um, yeah but yeah and that's where it makes me think like is it a genetic like firing trigger but you know we know genes can be turned on and off so that's the real thing that I, I'm really going to love about reading in your book is if you know how do you turn on those genes if there are genes right um, yeah well, you, were talking, you were talking about uh, how my kids are gen genetically identical and yet had, you know, one had a serious illness, the other didn't. And what, what I take away from that is how empowering it is. Like the, the fact that we can have such a, such that our environment plays such a huge role on our genes and expression, like which genes get expressed mm -hmm. and, everything and mutation, the whole bit. And I certainly, my knowledge is not deep and I don't, I'm not, a, I, I don't know the science that well, but any parent of a, identical twins will tell you the genes are, seem like nothing. I mean, there's, there's such different individuals yeah. and such totally different people. It really is. It, it's just so empowering. You, you have more control over your, life and your health, then I think you realize it's not, genes are not your destiny. And I mean, and that's where eating the right foods comes into play. I mean, we know how they can affect expression of genes. Yes. Um, and so, but that's just, it's just great news for us. I mean, it's yeah. just great news. <laughs> we're not, we're not doomed. No. And if you can answer that question, you know, that, you know, just even based on that, the epigenetics of, you know, our beautiful human beings and combined with that persistence and the answer to where does persistence come from? Like, I would love to know, like how, if, if once that book comes out and all this information that you're gathered, can we then 
teach them? Because at the end of the day, when we go searching for answers to questions like that, you know, usually what we learn is that there's actually, you know, the five skills that people with persistence have. And so then you tend to be able to teach that to a group of people to then maybe fire up those genes or maybe fire up habits, right? We also know habits create results, which lead to certain things. And so, you know, I'm curious that if that might come out of it, that you recognized amongst all these people who are persistent that they have all of these, you know, qualities or their habits that they do every day or something. I don't know. Not that I wanted to be the seven, you know, habits of highly effective people. The seven habits of persistent people. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I always, that's what I was looking for. I wanted, cause, and I, but they all had, and was sort of like a, it kind of, uh, fit with that mouse study I was talking about. Mm. All the people that I wrote about who had overcome these diseases that they had no business overcoming, really. I mean, that they really weren't supposed to get recover from. They all had had, and this was just by chance, they all had difficult early lives. Mm. And they had, so it was, when you talk about habit, they, they definitely had practice um, overcoming something and whether they started out that way, you know, maybe they just start and that's how they were able to overcome that first difficulty. You know, Terry Walls, Dr. Terry Walls talks about how when she was a child, she was growing up in the 50s, 60s in rural Iowa and she knew she was gay and, you know, she knew that that was not an acceptable life and, um, and she had a sad family life and, and she, but she also worked on the farm. And so she had, she kind of had this, she was used to working hard and um, all of those things you could see how, um, like I said, it's sort of common sense. Um, You can see how then when she's faced with this MS that she's, that has a hold of her, that she would just, she would have confidence in herself that she would be able to get through it. Um, and so, and I, so I was really struck by that. I think there is something to, and, and it, and like I said, it's common sense. I mean, if we are used to overcoming challenges, then we're going to be more confident. Yeah. But yeah, I like how you, you know, common sense, like I'm always like, oh, it's so common sense that food is medicine, but it's not. <laughs> I, you know, I just saw a post on um, one of my classmates from university who, and the reason I noticed it was that she said, oh, I just received terrible news from the oncologist. You know, her cancer's come back a second time, it looks like. And she's holding a Starbucks mug that is like triple caramel, triple shot, blah, 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 blah from Starbucks. And she's like, but I'm celebrating this terrible news with this processed, packaged, sugary, dairy-laden, fake coffee beverage. So I'm like, how, like, and to post that publicly, make you know, I'm like, it's an interesting one, but it made me realize that she, you know, you can't judge that because she just, doesn't have the knowledge that food is medicine. Like it's not common sense for her. Right. It's actually probably makes total sense that you celebrate with that. Right. For sure. You know, so it's interesting, like this thing with persistence, but of course, you know, going back to that most study, I have to ask you because you are a persistent person. So did you have struggles when you were younger? Like, did well, you, I did, you know, it's funny. I don't think that I did. And, uh, but that's why I, put, I don't really put myself in the category of, um, I, I think I, 
like I said, I think I was driven more by desperation. I don't know that. Child, yeah. And then I, and then I also, have, you know, I had a professional life of being a, a reporter, which requires doggedness. And I think that, you know, you learn something from that. But, um, but I, the people that I met when I was researching my book were in a different class. I mean, they really were because they had from the beginning hope where, and I did, I did not, I absolutely was not hopeful that we would find a solution for Shepard. And I, and we, um, we got lucky because we heard about somebody who had recovered, but from the beginning I was, um, you know, I just fell into a depression and, um, didn't, and was just, I didn't see a way out. And I, um, and certainly was looking for a way out, but I didn't, I didn't have that confidence from the beginning. So I really, I don't, I don't put myself in that category, but yeah. But <laughs> now if somebody got sick in my family, yeah. I would know, okay, we get to work, you know, yeah. we will, we will look and we will not stop looking until we find an answer. And we will certainly not stop trying things um, ever, you know, okay. keep going. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think that, but that, and that, you know, because we had a, we had a real win. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think, yeah, definitely learning that. I mean, so this is great because it kind of shows us that you learned you know, some of these skills by being a journalist. And then that translated into that, you know, that desperation piece is your story with your son. And yeah. so that in itself is a traumatic event. So that's a hard, you know, experience right. to go through. Um, but you said something about, you know, when you went through that and just, you know, sinking into that depression. So there's so many parents who have these sick kids and they don't know what to do with them. I mean, right. you know, I'm working with one um, family, their daughter's anorexic and, you know, I meet the mom all the time because, you know, it's a small community and, you know, and I know on the outside, like she's happy and looks amazing and glowing, but on the inside, and we've all been there. I mean, we've all had sick kids, but when oh. you have a child that has this chronic illness, like how did you get through that? Like what are, you know, some tips that you well. have? What's that? I did not get through it well. You didn't? No, I don't. I, um, what did that look like for you? And I mean, you, have you, do you think you've come out, but can you say you've come out of that place for now? Sure, for sure. But I, um, I did not. The funny thing is people say, oh, you know, you go through something difficult and you dig deep and you find all this. What I discovered about myself was when things got hard, I collapsed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, yeah. that was real. I mean, that was, I, I did not handle it well. I was so wrecked um, because I felt trapped and I didn't think we had it had answers and um and i remember going I, I remember going to a therapist and feeling like i just couldn't handle this and i don't even think i said anything i just cried through the entire thing and i and i got and i came out of that because shepherd got better right i mean that's the thing i mean i i think that to have a sick child is really i i really don't it's hard to come up with things that can be as bad as that. I mean, certainly mm -hmm. losing a child um, is worse. And I did try and console myself that this was not a life-threatening disease that he had. Yeah. Um, and that the, we were lucky in that way. Um, but I, I just think it is, there is a friend of mine whose child was sick said, I think there's a special place in heaven for, for parents of sick children. I mean, I just mm -hmm. think that, and I look at people, 
Um, I do think that people have incredible strength, though. I mean, I'm, I'm in awe of, of those parents who can get on with their lives and who are not overcome by it. I was. I was. And I got better because, um, because our story changed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't, I, I couldn't, I was not an example. I was definitely not an example. But, you know, you're an example for definitely a certain group of listeners out there who would respond exactly the same way as you do when there's such a a huge amount of, um, I mean, there was so much. Like, you are going against the medical system. I remember in the book where you're finally, like, I know things weren't easy between you and your husband during that time. Write about that in the book. You had a child that was, you know, at one point screaming. Shepard was screaming, like, all day and all night because he was in so much pain when the arthritis was in, you know, so many of his joints. And I mean, I, like, I have no idea what I would do in that situation. I know when we dealt with an acute illness, like Jaden's meningitis, that was an acute stage. It was five days of insane intensity. And it was almost like I was thrown into the middle of a fire and the fight and flight, like I was fighting for five days. But I don't know how you fight for a full solid year. Right. Right. Well, but then, but I'm so lucky that it was only a year. That's the thing. Well, yeah. And and it's interesting because you said, so I've just gone through, um, you know, I'm doing a PhD right now. I'm not doing a very good job at, 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 you know, managing to just scrape assignments in. And I just had to ask for um, a leave of absence because I came to terms with the last 18 months of our life had been insane from multiple deaths um, to, you know, so just so much, you know, friends being diagnosed with cancer and young moms and, you know, to opening up restaurants, closing restaurants and finance, almost losing our house to death threats. Like it's, but it wasn't until I had to express, I didn't, wasn't really summing it up to anybody. Every time people would say like, how are things going? I'd be like, great. Um, (laughs) And because that's all I could do, you know, and so when one of my professors said, you know, like, tell me, like, you know, how things are going. I just like, Bleh, you know, uh, yeah. and, but then after that, I made a list of my year and I realized, okay, that is way too much stress for anybody to handle. But the way I process stress is to like completely pretend it doesn't even exist. Uh-huh. Right. So, and, and also, uh, you know, I can definitely say for the last, you know, the few months in the spring there, I probably did hit a, sp- a state of depression, but having read so much about depression, the one thing is that I'm also able to talk my way through things. And for me, that depression, which I think in for you too, probably is when you're depressed by so many things that have to happen, decisions to make, and just the weight of the experience is what is putting that pressure on you, which results in that depression. And that was explained to me by, you know, Brene Brown, Tony Robbins, I think writes about it. Um, Maya Angelou, like, you know, they talk about depression from that, that state. And instead of being given an antidepressant as a drug, the antidepressant is often like, let's take some of the pressure off. Or in your case, like you start to see results in your child. You know, right. and, and so you didn't need an antidepressant and I don't feel like I need an antidepressant, but I definitely need to shift things in my life and also just acknowledge. So I think your story though, I know there's so many moms going out there who are collapsing under the weight of that, Ill, you know, sick child and that yeah. experience. So yeah, I think that's, um, if you ever want to write another book about that, I know it'll help in a million people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I'm sure you've read this book far from the tree. 
No, uh, I haven't. Andrew Solomon, but he writes about, um, I mean, really this, the theme of the book is difference, but he writes about the difference between parents and children. And in each chapter, he takes on a different difference. So there's a chapter on autism. There's a chapter on deafness. There's a chapter on being gay. And he, and he sort of uh, writes about um, what really comes through is these family stories of how families grapple with these various challenges and stresses. And in many cases, which won't surprise you, it's the moms mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, who innovate some therapy because it doesn't exist. So the, you know, there's this autism chapter writes about this woman who like, there was nothing that could help her son. And so she innovates this whole way of teaching him and reaching him um, that now is in use today broadly. But it just sort of shows, I mean, I think that is certainly one coping mechanism, right? Where if you are overwhelmed by this thing, there's nothing that can help you. Then one thing you can do is try. Yeah. Which <laughs> is that persistence. Yeah. 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 And it's true because I like what you said earlier about the fact that um, you know, what have you got to lose by trying? Like if it's changing your diet, what have you really got to lose? Like in, as long as you're not drinking gasoline and, you know, things like that, like if it's- Well, that's it's, the thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, and, and so the idea that, um, I mean, I hear it all the time as I'm sure you do too, this, this, this response of, well, that just seems too hard. I, I can't, like what, am I not gonna have ice cream? And I mean, and I just- I, that I don't understand, frankly. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I mean, I mean, I understand we all like to eat junk and whatever, but when the, the potential payoff is what it is, I, um, I don't know. I don't understand. First of all, can't we all try anything for a short period of time? Like you can do anything. Like exactly. if you say six weeks, like what can't you do for six weeks? I mean, who can't do that? Yeah. Um, and, uh, but I also, and I'm sure you feel this way too, the sort of the, the, when you think about when you're eating well and you're and certainly after I spent time with Terry, I, I think I was a pretty good eater before, but after you spend time with Terry Walls and she's eating and like cooking for you, her like 12 cups a day of fruits and vegetables, you realize, oh, I am not doing nearly what I could be doing. And then you also think like, okay, she recovered from MS after she started eating this way, what can it do for me? Oh yeah. <laughs> Where I just feel like, oh my God, like that, imagine, I mean, what, what, what is she doing to her cells? <laughs> yeah, well, and that's a part we, people, and I do see that all the time. I'll have families that there's like no other medical solution for them. And yeah. they're about to lose body parts. They're about to, like death is on the table right. and you know, they won't try changing their diet, but right. they'll try rock climbing for the first time. Like they'll do right. a cleanse five years ago on some weird, funky, yeah. crazy, like yeah. drink maple syrup and lemonade for 10 days. Right. They'll do right. that, right. but they won't. And I get that it's probably has to do with the work. Like how do I cook meals every day? Um, and what foods yeah. do I buy? Like it's so much easier when someone tells you to drink like six liters of maple syrup, lemon for water. Sure. For sure. So I do get that.
but yeah, I'm in the same boat where I'm just like, we try so many different things every day, whether it's like learning how to use Facebook for the time, first time, or, you know, learning to drive a car and learning to walk. Like those are big, massive accomplishments that we make. And why not just try experimenting in your kitchen just, just for six weeks? You know, right. which our book's based on a five-week model because if we can get people doing it for five weeks, they see such amazing results uh-huh. that we hope that they don't go back to their old lifestyle. But, but it is a hard one. And I mean, it's also society and it's all that marketing that says, mm-hmm. you know, have the ice cream. It's good for you. You need calcium from your dairy. And, uh, and I, but I know, I'm sure you have this experience too, where I, I feel kind of naive because I will, you know, they'll be at like a school function or something and you'll see, or you'll, or the, my kids will (laughs) come back and say like, oh, so-and-so had gummy bears in his lunch or something. And I'll think, what? Like, how is there, like, there's, someone has gummy bears? I mean, I, I'm, I'm so naive. I know this is how most people eat, but I'm shocked by it. I know. But as, you know, and as we've said, people don't have the information. And I, I think if they if they did, then I don't see how you make that choice. Yeah. And I mean, we're going through this right now because our 12 year old who is, she's a Taurus like I am incredibly stubborn. And you know, she always rolls her eyes anytime. She's like, mom, just stop talking about nutrients and organs and anatomy (laughs) and food. And I'm like, okay, but people keep asking me, like you'd have to tell them to stop asking me about this stuff when they come to our house and I'll stop talking about it. And, um, you know, but we just went through that yesterday where, you know, she showed me this big bag of gummy bears that she went out and bought. Uh, And I was like, I know. And literally, (laughs) and I'm like, okay, you know what? If, If I like go hard on her right now, she'll probably go running in the opposite direction. So I'm just gonna you know, let her experiment and just check in and be like, how are you feeling? And right. I do notice the patterns. Like if she's using her babysitting money or whatever to buy that stuff, um, you know, she'll come back asking for lots of vegetables and salads at the dinner table, like within a few days. So I've noticed that pattern, but right. you know, I am so fortunate though, that they do go to a school where, you know, you're not allowed to pack it, pack processed packaged food in their lunch. Wow. I know. And we just found out that there's another school district that's actually making it that they kids have to pack a certain percentage of fruits and vegetables in their lunch every day. Oh my gosh. Is this public school in Canada? Yes, this is. Well, our kids go to semi, it's called an independent semi-private school called Waldorf. Uh-huh. And um yeah. yeah. And, but this other school district that they want us to provide food um, for their hot lunch programs. Yeah. They were telling us about that. And I was just almost fell off my seat when they said that, but you know, imagine if every school could just make a yeah, simple like policy change like that. Yeah. Like that's the thing. I mean, if you can, if you can have that kind of reach, that's incredible. Yeah. Let's see Canada is so far ahead of the U S in so many ways. No, no, no. And t- Colin, Dr. Colin Campbell said the same thing yesterday. And I was like, stop right there. I'll give you a hundred reasons why we're not. Uh, I mean, our, you know, we did, fortunately, the federal government re- released their um, uh, healthy food guide, their new Canadian food guide, which does say we have to start consuming predominantly a plant-based diet. So that was amazing. Uh-huh. Yeah. But. Be proud of. But like I was working with a client and everyone who's listened to this podcast has heard this story, but you know, about a year and a half ago where all the kids in oncology were being fed hot dogs on white bread with green jello. 
So, you know, so it's not translating down to the systems that, you know, that absolutely need to know this information. It's this, you know, this whole policy change in this public school system is really coming about because of one woman and the PAC community. Wow. Right. It's not being driven at a policy level, economic level. And what you have in the States is really remarkable what's going on. Like we keep getting, I mean, it is much bigger, so there's more stories, but we just heard that New York is now mandating that hospitals have to provide, I think, vegan food options. And California has a ton of policy in place around plant-based food. Yeah. Yeah. You get to, yeah. Yeah. So, and there's clinics like we have zero clinics except for, I mean, maybe two in Canada where that are based on plant based principles. Whereas in the States, I can name 50. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. Well, okay. That's something. And you have like dozens and dozens of plant based medical doctors that are now setting up their practices. I was at, two, you would love these two physicians' conferences, by the way, that I attended last year. Um, you could easily go as a reporter, journalist, you know, author. Um, and, but I mean, it really is targeted at physicians and healthcare workers, but it's where they teach about food as medicine and regenerative medicine and reversing disease with food. But it's incredible because even though they have all these scientists that are presenting this data and it's rich, their whole room is full like of thousands of physicians that are like, is this true? Right, right, right. right. (laughs) But the stories that came out of there were amazing because there's also Dr. Saray Stansick that I think you'd love to interview for your book as well because she had multiple sclerosis as well. She Uh was in a wheelchair and she healed herself through food she also went on to run a marathon um, because she said that was one of her goals that she wanted to do if she healed she ran the marathon and now she's put out an amazing documentary which i haven't seen yet but i'm gonna just say it's amazing called uh code (laughs) blue so code blue so yeah so i think just another ms story and then there was another doctor who healed herself from ms and it wasn't dr terry walls so but i thought about you when i was at the conference because i'm like that's what there's a bunch of doctors out there you know really reversing their ms wow that's so encouraging isn't it i mean i i did find that the that there even in the period of time the several years i was working on my book i did feel like there was starting to be a shift in attitudes even among you know the sort of very, um, you know, in, in terms of even like very conservative thinking doctors. And I think that one of the things driving that is the understanding or emerging understanding of how important gut bacteria is. And I think that like the research on gut bacteria, I think has, is certainly convincing to most medical professionals as it should be. And then, then there's this recognition of, oh, well, one of the main ways we can affect our gut bacteria is by eating certain things. And so I think that that has legitimized. Um, um, I'm curious what you think about that, but I feel like that because there's been such good research about the gut bacteria, that that has helped legitimize the idea that what we eat plays a huge role in our health. Oh, a hundred percent. And, you know, I'm really curious about that for your son as well, because from arthritis as well and gut bacteria link, then there's the autism gut bacteria link in the gut brain axis. Um, A lot of research published on that in the last two years. And, um, and yeah, so for your son, I'm just talking, does he still continue to eat this way? So he, the way that we are all focused is just on and this is partly also, as I said, after, you know, learning about Terry Walls, we are totally focused on eating as many and as whole foods 
vegetables, mostly vegetables, fruits, nuts, seeds as, as we possibly can and a variety of them. And we do eat some, we do eat some meat, Mm -hmm. but the emphasis for us is on a variety of fiber and just like making sure that we are feeding our bacteria fiber and to keep that population as strong as possible and as diverse as possible. Um, and, uh, and for not, you know, and for long-term health, I mean, as you know, like all that is what we know about heart disease, what we know about, you know, they're all in cancer, they're inflammatory diseases. I don't, I know I don't need to tell you this, but, um, our audience needs to know that people (laughs) who are hearing this for the first time and they're like, eat real to heal what, you know, like I, I did not mean to say that with a Southern accent by any means. I did (laughs) go to university in Mississippi, so I definitely picked up a little bit of an accent there. Um, But 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 my takeaway was kind of like after all this research and like interviewing microbiologists, and there are these great microbiologists at Stanford who've done a lot of work on this. And basically like what I walked away was like, oh, okay, so eat your vegetables. (laughs) Like like we've we've always known it. Yeah. and it's kind of that simple. Um, I mean, there are ways of working around the edges, but I definitely, um, that was kind of my one take. That's kind of what, what our, fo- that's certainly what our focus is. Um, and I'm like counting during the day. I'm, I'm thinking, okay, let's see, they have a fruit and a vegetable in their lunch. And then it, for the snack, uh, I'm going to try and work in a couple extra. And then at dinner, we have three vegetables, you know, and I, it's, it, so I am, con- if you're not counting, I think it's, or if you are counting, it makes it easier. And yeah. plus, I feel like I, makes you feel great. Like I, I, it's like an ego thing for me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, we got our vegetables in. Exactly. And we need to celebrate that because, yeah. you know, and what you're saying, like, you know, for people out there, I mean, we, yes, we have vegan restaurants, but we do that because, you know, we're all about reversing like end stage diseases and we have to do it the fastest way possible. So we get rid of all the animal protein, which T. Colin Campbell says, you want to reverse disease, you get rid of the animal protein immediately and you eat a bunch load of fruits and vegetables and, you know, and you eat clean, real, like healthy, organic food. And those are the two things. And it was, you know, it was such brilliant advice because it's really, that's pretty simple to follow. But counting is really important. Like we create a sheet um, that is, has pictures of fruits and vegetables. So 30 different fruits and vegetables and a little checkbox beside it. And you can put it on your fridge and, you know, you can laminate it so you can wash it off the next day and tick it off. So if you need ideas and you're like, you know what, I haven't had rutabaga ever. I'm going to try rutabaga. Or, you know, I didn't get my, you know, 10 to 12 fistfuls of vegetables and fruits. You know, you can mark on there and show that you did because you need to be a bit of a data collector and, you know, and it's the only way. Otherwise we tend to lie to ourselves and we're like, oh yeah, I eat plant-based. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And I also think that kind of like talking about it is great for kids too, because we talk about Okay, so how many colors have you gotten? Because we're trying to get different kind of antioxidants. So, okay, so let's count. How many colors did you have today? And then you talk about feeding these, your little friends in your gut. And you, you know, I mean, that's the kind of thing kids can relate to is that you've got these little guys (laughs) down there. And if you're eating refined foods, they're starving and they're dying out. And so they're, you know, you got to feed them. And you're talking about your daughter and certainly, you know, I will start to 
launch into some kind of lecture about nutrients and I get the mom, <laughs> you know. I know. But like you said, there is a level. I mean, it's getting through because like yeah. you said, your daughter will crave vegetables and, you know. And, and I truly believe it's her gut bacteria that's so vibrant that is craving the vegetables. Like, it's almost yeah. like you fed me crap for a couple of days, like, you know, yeah. with your babysitting money. So now it's time to go see your mother and put some plant based. Like, I swear it's the bacteria in her body calling out for it. Uh -oh. And um, because they know it. And the wonderful thing about, it, about this, and for your kids as well and your family, is they now have those. Um, natural affinity, like their brain is wired to enjoy the vegetables and the fruits and the textures and the flavors and the non-crazy, you know, salty, sugary flavors that come in processed food, I imagine. Is that true? Well, I mean, this is the thing, and I, and I know you struggle with this too, where they will, um, this is what I struggle with, is this, I feel like if I forbid them can't ever have pizza again. I worry that then it'll fetishize it to such an extent that they'll just go crazy. Mm -hmm. um, and so I will, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, we'll, they will get to have pizza, that kind of thing. But it, it is such torture for me. I, I have such a, like, I can't, I can't relax about a single meal because I feel like, oh my God, I just, I know how bad, I know how bad it is. Yeah. But I also think that it's also not bad for them to see the comparison. So they can tell that they feel worse after they eat something like that. Um, but it's something I struggle with. I mean, I, mm. I don't know, like, how do you deal with it? You know, they go to, your kids go to birthday parties and they they eat their cupcakes and pizza. And how, how do you handle that? Yeah, it's, it's really, really hard. And so when my kids, like since they were little, um, they've always had that affinity to fruits and vegetables. So parents would call me and say, it's crazy. Your two-year-old just devoured all the vegetables on the plate. I'm like, great. So she goes yeah. and has a birthday cake. I don't care. Uh -huh. um, you know, it would be very different if my kids only craved the processed packaged food, right. you know, but they would most likely also have health issues as a result, like that I see in many of their friends and many of the kids at school. And, um, you know, so for me, I, I don't like hound down on them. And we make a pizza at home. Like my husband makes a brilliant, you know, pizza, lots of vegetables, like lo yeah. it's all loaded with vegetables on there. So I know they're getting their uh, vegetables. They're not allergic to gluten. They're not allergic to that we know of. Um, yeah. You know, they are, you know, right now, as far as we can see, as healthy as can be. So I'm not as vigilant but definitely like at our home we you know when you come to our house like don't expect to get anything crazy right. like packaged right. you know right. maybe taco chips for guacamole but even though yeah. that's so funny that's our one thing too <laughs> and I still look at that bag of taco chips because I'm like you're still processed you still have a considerable amount of salt you still right. have oils you, you know so it is a bit of anxiety and I try not to but it also comes to conviction too, because when I'm working with a client, I say to them, your disease is not unlike alcoholism and you would not get a cheat day if you were trying to kick alcohol. Yeah. Right? So yeah. you would not get a cheat day if you were trying to overcome a disease. Your body, like that microbiome in your gut, it needs to be like squashed and killed the, like the bad bacteria that's craving yeah. the processed sugary stuff, um, yeah. salty stuff, and you have to replace it. So you can't let that bad, bad bacteria win over the good bacteria. So it truly is like being an alcoholic. So, you know, 
uh, and if definitely if I had a sick child at home, like we would be that diligent. It's like, yeah. and you know, my daughter had a cold the other day and I was like, no, I'm sorry, but there is no, you know, and I had a list of these things. Like I'm not, we're not going to go eat out at this place because I know those foods don't contain the amount of nutrients that we can make at home. Yeah. So I wax and wane between it and it is definitely like, you know, I, there's these a generation of kids now that are you know, saying that they have orthorexia, which is fear of unhealthy food. Oh, wow. And that's a new one. Well, and I don't know, like I need to look into that and do more research into that to understand, you know, what that is. And is it similar to anorexia where, you know, people are counting calories perhaps. I mean, there's so many different types and, um, you know, of anorexia and the way that it manifests in people's lives every day. But so I'm really curious about that. And I haven't done a lot of research and I'd love to bring on an expert on orthorexia because, you know, I mean, there's all these Instagram, Facebook posts of what's healthy and what's not, and people can't decide. And I bet you, it's just, you know, it feels like it's a lot of stress around it. It sounds like an anxiety disorder, right? Well, like, yeah, exactly. So is it the anxiety that's, I don't know. I, d- I can't speak enough to it right now. And I have to probably think about it a little bit more, but definitely it's triggered a fear. Like, will my kids grow up having orthorexia if I'm constantly hounding them? Right. So we just try and have really good discussions. And, you know, we have books that lay around the house that are for all different age groups. And, you know, my littlest one, she's eight and she will not eat meat. She decided that years and years ago. And she, if she goes to your house, she's like, is there any animal products in that? You know, I and- love it. You know, and it, it's so fascinating because I'm like, where did that come from? Probably from being built, like born at the green mustache almost. Right. Um, so with, you know, it's, I don't know. I, I'm, it's a tough one, but I think as a parent, and you'll probably agree that the number one thing we could do is always make sure that there's healthy foods available for our kids for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm-hmm. And then if they go and top up with the cake at a party, yeah. you know what? they're in a much better place than if they were eating that stuff 90% of the time and only eating vegetables 10% of the time or not at all in some cases. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. And I do feel like, okay, well, if I can like, if I can get all this stuff in them and then like, then, okay, that I, that's what, that's all I can do. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And I, uh, there was something I was going to say to you and now I forgot. Oh, one thing also I have found, cause I have, you know, is, is, as we agree, you know, you want to be having a variety, obviously, of, of vegetables. And um, and I'm curious what um, what your approach has been when you want to introduce, like you were saying, you've never had, like if you've never had rutabaga or whatever. And I've had like I've had mixed success with my kids, where we'll have like I tried to we had never eaten beets, and I thought okay, and I don't even and I was and I personally was not a fan of beets, but I thought, you know what, we got to get them in there. We got to start eating beets, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and we I had a lot of success like that. I would give them I roasted, I cut them in fry shape, and then I roasted them. And um, I would I gave I gave us all like a beet fry a night <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> for weeks. And it was like it was like um, exposure therapy. And, and they, did it work? Yeah, but now they're fine. Like nobody, including myself, nobody loves beets, but right. we all eat them. Okay. Um, and so I'm curious, like what your technique has been in terms of broadening, or are your kids just easy? Um, you know, my kids are pretty easy, but they definitely, like I can go and tell you the top three things that each child, it's all different, but what they will not eat on the plate, you know, uh-huh. that 
they're like, oh, that's on there. So, you know, we still always put it on the plate or in the meal and we don't try and hide anything because we're not, you know, I've always sort of been against hiding ingredients in food to trick our kids into eating them because I want them to know that they're eating cauliflower or beets. And, but definitely turning beets into fries is not hiding it. You can't hide that. It's not going to taste like French fry. Um, But exactly what you did is if you just keep putting it on the table day in, day out for like at least 19 times. 19. Uh, oh, 19 is the number? Well, and that it's it also works in anything that you're doing. Like with habit formation, they usually say anywhere from like 19 to 30 times you do something, it becomes a habit. But with food, it's a really great way of doing it. And also what I tell parents is you put the foods that you want them to try on the table before you put out anything else. And it's almost like, hey, kids, there's snacks on the table. Everybody right. loves snacks, right? right? There's treats on the table. Um, <laughs> One thing with the beet fries, which I think is a great idea, is to make an awesome dip. You know, yeah. and a simple dip. It could be onion, garlic, some apple cider vinegar, blended potato, and you know, some something green or something, or you know, maybe like cooked carrot, so it's like an orange color, something to give it color. And then, you know, they can dip the fries in there and the taste of the dip will make the fries, the beet fries more enjoyable. Now uh-huh. If they're still eating super clean, healthy food. The dip is like the cleanest, healthiest whole food you can imagine. Yeah. So, um, so that's one way of doing it. And that dip recipe, like if you take a little bit of flax oil or if you don't like oil, you can leave it out, but just apple cider vinegar, garlic, and um, flax oil and two or three other ingredients. It could be orange juice and cilantro. Um, mm, Good. Yeah. And kids seem to like cilantro that way. And it's just a really nice dressing. So you can pour that on the dip. But the best beet recipe that I've made that's been so successful with anti-beet people, <laughs> literally there are people who are like, I hate beets. They taste like yeah. dirt. Is you boil the beets. Uh-huh. And then after you take them out, you just, the skin will just peel off really easily. So you don't even have to, you don't peel them first. You cook them in their, in their jackets and then you let them cool down. And you slice them into half moon shapes, thin half moon shapes, put them in a bowl with um, vinegar and maybe a bit of flax oil and maybe chopped red onion. And you just let it sit in that for like, you know, an hour. And then you serve it like that. And there's something about the savoriness of it that it has won over every single person that we've ever served it for. And my kids will devour it. Oh, I'm totally trying that. Oh, it's going to be. And when you add it to your plate with other foods, it's so nice because that apple cider vinegar dressing sort of mixes with it. It's so so divine. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. And and it also sounds pretty. It's so beautiful. And, you know, and so you could do that with any vegetable, with any fruit, and also just figuring out, you know, maybe making it in different ways. Like, you know, you can have shredded beets, you can have somebody made an amazing beet, uh, or my husband makes amazing beet taco um, filler. So it's just mushrooms, beets, I think walnuts, and some herbs and spices. And he blends that in a food processor. And it actually looks like ground beef, which to me is kind of, I'm like, never liked ground beef. So I'm like, Oh, but, um, but my kids devour it. Wow. And I'm like, it's beets kids. You know, I'll tell them like, you're eating beets. I'm just going to let you know I won this one. (laughs) And you don't care because they're like, we're eating tacos. It's so good. That's so great. Yeah. So that, you know, for parents who are curious about how to do that, I mean, we're so, we have, every food recipe is at our fingertips. Now you don't even need to buy cookbooks. Um, you know, just go online and Google 10 different ways to cook beets. And before you know it, your kids will be eating them. 
That's really smart because I get stuck as I think we all do with the same, you know, preparing things the same way. And then, you know, yeah. we all get sick of stuff. Yeah. And yeah. And it takes, it's an effort, right? Like to, oh, you know, to cook effort. this with, what's that? It's a huge effort. It's yeah. a job. Yeah. Um, yeah. As you know, um, <laughs> so oh. it's a job. <laughs> and it used to be that actually that cooking in the kitchen used to be a full-time job for one member of our family a hundred years ago. Right. Right. Yeah. It was our great grandmothers that, you know, were in the kitchen and our grandmothers and they've made food from scratch. And if we're lucky enough to still have a grandmother that's still around, like for people who are our age that, you know, those grandparents remember when processed food hit the shelves and TV dinners and, you know, they were looking at it like, why would you eat this? This is right. not food. Right. And so they still remember that time. And so it is a full-time job. And so what is it, is it, so now that you're doing this and I know you said you got excited about like, you know, getting, you know, 12 cups of vegetables or fruits into your kids' bellies a day or 12 different right. items. Um, is it, so since your son has been healed and please, I need you to share the story again about how you went to the rheumatologist just recently. Cause I think oh, okay. listeners need to know this. Okay. Um, so we've been, so when Shepard, Shepard was three, when he was sick and then he was recovered when he was four, but, um, for years since we've continued to see the rheumatologist for checkups, um, where he, um, does a physical examination and he tests every joint and wants to see if there's any inflammation. And, um, and we've, you know, we have, even though I disagree with him about some things <laughs> and, you know, I, I think that he, um, he, he ended up being a pretty good person to work with. He was not condescending when we wanted to try this diet experiment. He said, I, you know, I can't give you an opinion, but um, I, it's okay with me if you want to try it. And that's sort of like, I felt like that was the most that we could ask for really with somebody that traditional. Um, so I, you know, I like this person, you know, I, I, I think he's a kind, he, you know, he's very caring and, and kind when Shepard recovered. Anyway, we've continued to see him. Shepard's almost 12. So we've seen him, you know, for, for a significant amount of time. And we just were at Shepard's annual checkup and, and the doctor said, Shepard, I think you're graduating and I don't think you need to come anymore. And, uh, that was really, as you as I'm sure you can imagine, just absolutely thrilling. I was, I was very emotional, actually. Um, of course. Very emotional. And, uh, and I said to him, I said, well, at least we, you know, we know where to find you yeah. <laughs> if we need to. But, and he said, I thought it was a really nice thing. He said, well, just let me know. Send me good news. You, know, you don't have to reach out if something, but like send me, send me news if something good happens, which I thought was a really nice um, thing because we – are engaged with doctors uh, in in tough circumstances so often. So it was really satisfying to have this um, such a such a positive. You know, we skipped out of there. We were Shepherd was thrilled. <laughs> of course, no more doctors visits. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. it was a great. It was a great conclusion. To our and story. does he remember being in pain? And like, I mean, he was oh. three. He doesn't remember, and, and so so much so that there was some instance um, a couple years ago where he said, my ankle hurts. And of course, I immediately, you know, and I said, well, does it feel like arthritis? And he said, I, I don't remember what arthritis felt like. And of course, you know, whatever it was, was gone in a day, you know, whatever, who cares? Yeah. But, 
but that to me also was another victory. I don't remember what arthritis feels like. Um, so yeah. That is amazing. Um, if this is the Marie Forleo business show, she's got all of this high tech stuff that goes on, but I'd be shooting out like, you know, confetti right now and we'd have <laughs> horns and, and her gold butt dancers that should like pop up on the screen behind her. And literally I'd have that going off for you right now because you really I'll take are your gold butt dancers. Thank yeah, you. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to try and figure out how she does that and get them on. It's all technology, great technology and a team that can do that for you. Um, but I would have that going on for you right now because you know, you are the epitome of everything that this show stands for. You are a healing hero and your son is a healing hero. And you know, you, you know, you had that curiosity, you, chose to listen to what that woman, random woman had said, you know, a year previously about, Hey, diet can heal. And you yeah. then did it and you were persistent and it's been eight or nine years since then. And your son just got the a-okay to not ever come back. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was great. And I like, you're amazing. One, the lesson that I, one of the things that I'm grateful for is that, um, Shepard himself, even though he doesn't remember what arthritis felt like one he did learn and and because kids just do um he he learned he he was watching um he's watching a movie and one of the characters said when you hit a wall you push through it and he was so excited to tell me about that and he reported and and I said oh my gosh and it's, it's so when he's, and then he was even like demonstrated with his hands, like when you hit a wall, you push through it. And he said, and it sort of occurred to him in the moment, he said, that's like me with arthritis. And I thought, oh my gosh, like if this is your takeaway that you hit a wall and you push through it, then, then we are, then I would say all worth it. <laughs> it's really, um, I was really pleased that that was his, the lesson that he took from that. Um, that it really to bring our discussion back to persistence, but no, it really does bring it back. I mean, yeah, it's, that is such a beautiful story. And that's the thing I think as parents, all of the stuff that we do day in and day out, we don't necessarily see, you know, that the kids are taking it in or experiencing it the same way that we are. But I mean, truly they do come back and, you know, they, they do in some way, shape or form end up showing us that all this hard work that we put in and this persistence that we put in on our end does pay off in the long yeah. run. Yeah. I, you know, I had, a, I, um, one of the children that I wrote about in my book was, a, was this great kid who had an ADHD diagnosis and it was struggling in school. And he saw a pediatrician, this lovely guy in San Francisco who said, you know what, um, we're going to try and change your diet. Um, uh, because I work with a lot of children with ADHD and um, some of them, some of their symptoms go away if we take certain things out of their diet. So that, that's something that we're going to try. And his parents said, said to their child, like, okay, you have a choice. He was 10 at the time. And they said, you can, um, we can put you on medication, but it will change how your brain works. <laughs> or we can, do this experiment where we remove all these foods and then we reintroduce them one by one and we see if you have a food sensitivity or not. And the, the 10 year old said, I don't want to, I don't want to take medication. I don't want to change how my mind works. 
um, I'll go for the diet. And he ended up, um, his ADHD symptoms improved dramatically. And um, mm. I saw him a couple years after that. And he, I realized like w what he got from it is not just that he has, he's very healthy and, you know, and he's doing, he's thriving, he's doing really well. But his takeaway was that he, he got so much out of this, like having made this decision and having sort of overcome this thing and he did it himself. And he, um, he was just kind of this extraordinary kid with all this confidence and he was so proud of what he had done and he had no interest and, in, you know, he, he works, it's hard, you know, it's, he, there are a bunch of foods he doesn't eat and it, and it's obviously hard to be a young boy and young child and not be eating the cupcake that's offered you. And, um, but he was incredible and maybe he always was going to be incredible, but he had so much, um, confidence and, and sort of like the sense of control and over sort of his life and, and what, what was possible. And I just thought that was, it was just this sort of like ancillary lesson that, that we, a lot of us end up with, which is just, it's like this bonus of like, Oh wow, there are things that you can do. <laughs> and that is such a powerful, powerful story because you know, if we bring our children into that decision making as well, and we are honest with them and we explain, you know, the pros and cons and potential outcomes, you know, the negative and the positive that they can get from doing things, why not give them a chance? You know, as opposed to saying like, okay, we're putting you on meds because we right. want you to behave a certain way and it, you know, and not try these other options. And by at least presenting that smorgasbord of options on the table, whether it's two options or six options. Right. You know, and let your kids, you know, also have a say, because I think a lot of times we think that kids can't make decisions for themselves as well, that we know best. Right. But I mean, what we've come to learn with the whole food as medicine, um, you know, scenario is that most of us don't know best. Like, that's why we're so sick, because we're right. eating these foods. And so, you know, maybe let the kids decide as well. And again, it comes back to persistence, right. you know, because again, the parents let that child make that decision and he did but by they they gave him the opportunity to have success yeah and yeah. a win yeah. and then imagine what that will do for him for the rest of his life well and he pursued the much harder path I mean that's yeah. the thing and um I don't think it's so hard for him now but like especially for a kid I mean I think that's so much harder than oh you can just take this pill and then be done with it yeah. and um and I think that that alone, like that experience of working hard and um, I just think that's so valuable. I mean, he so valuable. so valuable for him outside of food, you know, <laughs> it's just, it's a great gift, I think. It is really. such a, and especially with autism, the link between the gut and the brain oh. is so hundred percent connected. We now know that there's causative factors there. And so, and we can't deny that science that's come out. And so for parents who are listening to this, and if you do have a child that, you know, it has ADHD or autism or, you know, any other um, learning difficulties, brain stuff, even if you have parents that are going through dementia and Alzheimer's, it's exactly the same science and research. Yeah. And so maybe before reaching for the drug, which might look like it's your only option, 
try it for six weeks, just changing your diet, because if you can get results, you literally can put off those drugs potentially for the rest of your life. Even. Well, this, I was so impressed by the pediatrician that this family went to because the family initially went to him saying, how soon can you put my kid on drugs? I mean, that was, he was, and he said, well, <laughs> and he, so he, he specializes in children with autism and ADHD. And he talks about, how, and by the way, his practice is at UCSF, which is, as you know, I mean, one of our most illustrious research institutions. And he even said, the pediatrician said to me, his name is Sandy Newmark. And he said, yeah, can you believe? I, I'm just in awe that I'm doing my practice here. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. But he says like, he, you know, he, he said it doesn't help everybody taking these certain foods out. It's not going to help everybody. But he said, you know, a majority of, of the kids who I treat for both ADHD and autism when I change their diets, a majority of them get better. I mean, that a majority, that's huge. I mean, think of that. And you, like the listeners listening to this, you can be part of that majority, right? Yeah. And yeah. you know what? And you just have some hope that it's going to work out. You give it a try. You see how it goes. And you know it's not going to be easy. And you know it's going to be tough. But it's most likely not going to be as tough as having a sick child. Right. 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 Oh my gosh. Right. Yeah. And that's, and it also like, you can do anything. You can experiment. We've already said this, but you can do anything for a short period of time. And that's sort of how this, the family that I'm talking about was able to sort of start because they thought, okay, well, it's a limited period of time. And of course now it's become their whole life, but, they, <laughs> <laughs> but it's probably benefited their health too. Right. For because sure. we know that they're at the age where they're probably going to be coming down with these chronic illnesses if they haven't been supporting their body, right? So, I mean, now they've just bought themselves years of life right, and quality of life too, you know, yeah. by doing that. Ah, it's yeah. a gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> but it's also the other thing I like about the, the, the great thing about the fact that food matters so much to your health is that it's in your control. I mean, that's the thing, like, oh, it's something you can do. I mean, it's not something that, it, it's, it's, it's like a way to work on your own health. But it, so it's not like, oh, you've gotten this diagnosis and that's just how it is. Like, there are things that you can do. And, I, and like I was saying earlier, like if you are making this effort and you are working on something, that is empowering. And, and, you know, will, can help when you are depressed. <laughs> exactly. Because it gives you purpose. And it comes back to that book, Man's Search for Meaning, is that, you know, you have to make meaning out of these terrible situations, these hard situations. And when you do that, that's when your purpose arises. And everybody talks about, like, trying to find purpose. So, you know, I'm like, I'm trying to find my purpose. Like, it's in a box behind the dumpster over there. <laughs> Right. But no, no, no. His, you know, he really talks about the fact that you have to make that out of the situations that occur in your life. And um, your purpose might be to help your child heal, you know, for, you know, a short period of time for you. It was like, it took about a year. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah and six weeks to get my, results. Yeah. But it certainly was, um, it certainly was my whole thing. I mean, I, I was working part time, but I, that was my whole focus in life. Um, and it does take a lot of effort. Um, mm -hmm. But like you said, I mean, how is that not worth it? 
Exactly. And now you're on this other, you know, purpose path of writing this book on persistence, which is amazing. And you brought the other side of impossible into the world, which has inspired so many people. I mean, we, we offer this book to our students who are going through our training and I know it's like moved them tremendously because it, you know, they hear me talk about this stuff and I can give them a ton of anecdotal stories from my clients, but then I hand them your book and they're like, Oh my gosh, it's other people too. You know, it's not just Nikki's stories. I'm like, Yes, it's other people. Um, food That's just how I felt when I first saw your talk that you gave, your TEDx talk, and I saw it, I thought, oh my gosh, there's someone else. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a thrill because you, you, know, you feel so isolated when yeah. you don't have the support of the medical community and you feel and you don't have all the facts yourself and it's overwhelming and it really, mm -hmm. but there's a community out there. A huge community of people that are healing their children with food. Yeah, yeah. That um, is amazing. Um, there is a group. Um, are you, do you know of this group, Documenting Hope? Um, oh, yes, I saw that. I met one of the women who, isn't it a woman who's um, the director behind that? Yes, and um, we always talk, I mean, we sort of got into contact because it was the same experience of, oh, you too? And so, and so we always talk about like, oh, our tribe. Um, but uh, yeah, so she's somebody. Her name is Beth Lambert. But but yes. and, yeah, and uh, but she's the same thing. It's really exciting to meet somebody else who, who, and where I'm not trying to convince. <laughs> I'm not trying to convince you. <laughs> you it's we do have to preach to the converted sometimes just to like keep our sanity when we're like yeah i know food heals right and they're like yeah it totally does here's my story here's my story because yeah otherwise we are constantly inundated with those questions you know that people ask like but what about all the protein and don't they need calcium and you know where you know is it safe to eat that many vegetables like i get asked questions like that and how long should i eat this way for <laughs> before I go back to my processed packaged food lifestyle um, with food coloring and chemicals that we can't pronounce, you know, so, but those are just a lot. Yeah. And I get it. It's because people are learning it for the first time, but it is, it, it's nice to be surrounded by people who just get it. And so that brings me to ask you this question. So how has it been with your friendships? Like, have you, <laughs> um, I, I have found that, well, I mean, a lot of my friends eat the way that we, I do. I mean, awesome. they, um, but I do find that um, it is hard to, it is hard. I, I find that if I try to tell somebody what to do, I really don't get anywhere. And that was actually one of the motivations of writing the book where I thought I can present the information and say, here's what I know. And then you, it's up to you to do with it what you will. Um, and so, cause I, cause I had, uh, I did sort of hit a wall with one friend who I thought might benefit from changing her diet. And, um, I didn't, I felt that I couldn't get anywhere with her. And, uh, and truly she was one of the motivations for writing the book. Cause I thought, oh, well she'll read my book. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> he has no choice. Um, but, uh, but I had another friend, um, who is a, a primary care doctor. And I've been so gratified because she has come to me to say like, how do I, how do, how do, how should we eat? Um, because she'll be the first to say like, I don't know anything about nutrition. I didn't learn anything in medical school about nutrition. And, 
I've actually gone to the market with her um, and, and sort of like coached her. I mean, it's been, I've, I, it couldn't make me happier where she just said like, okay, just tell me what to do. I mean, that's what you want to hear, right? Oh, a hundred percent. I've had so many people do that. Doctors as well. They're like, can I eat this? And I'm like, it is cabbage. Yes, you can eat it. (laughs) But I get it because it's so true. People need to know that physicians are not taught nutrition in medical school. So it's why they come out of medical school saying there's no relationship between food and disease. They don't know. They They don't know. know. Yeah. And they're not, I mean, and it they seems a lot about, they know a lot about what they know, but yes. they don't know anything about food. And in fact, the same friend has a son who won't eat anything really. I mean, he has such a limited diet and, um, and he has some issues also. And, and I, and it's just clear to me, you know, so you watch it and you think, Oh, um, but she said, well, you know, his pediatrician says, I told him what he was eating and pediatrician said, oh, that's fine. He's getting what he needs. And I was just like, no, he's not. And that guy doesn't know anything and don't listen to your doctor. (laughs) Oh, no, exactly. And I just interviewed this amazing doctor, Dr. Gordon Pedersen. And I love his program because it's, I believe his website's called Dr. You, but it's all about you being your doctor. You know, like yeah. it, and he's a medical, he's actually five times board certified medical doctor, natural path, and all of these other certifications. Uh-huh. And he's like, the only time you go to your doctor is when you need a diagnosis because they can run the tests. Right. 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 Or in an acute condition, like you're in a car accident, which is exactly what I talked about in my TED talk. Like that's what doctor, doctors are great for that. But right. when it comes to the chronic conditions and knowing about diet and food and health and also just what you need. Right. You like, you know, for example, when you were going through everything with your son and feeling depressed, it was, it's truly only you that could decide what you needed at that time, you know, to help you through that, whether it was sleep or support or a cook in the kitchen or someone to watch your child while you go get a massage or who knows. I mean, and ultimately it was your son healing was the ultimate answer for what you needed. But at the end of the day, it's only you that can decide really what it is. And you have to be willing to accept that and let go of the fact that your doctor is going to tell you what's right for you. Well, I think that was the huge sort of revelation for us going through this was that, you know, when our doctor, when we asked our doctor about, okay, well, what about changing Shepard's diet? And he said, well, I don't know anything about it. And then we saw another doctor who said, that's, that's not going to help him at all. Those words coming from, you know, the top specialist in New York City are so powerful. And you, you, it was the beginning for us. And so we really were not well educated about any of it and certain not shepherd's disease, none of it. And we were overwhelmed by the information and you want an expert to tell you what to do. And so the key distinction, I think, for anyone listening to this is to know to know what, and this is how a journalist thinks, like know who has the information. So when a doctor says to you, you know, diet's not going to help you, that's not because there's proof that diet won't help. That's because that doctor is not familiar with the evidence. And so, but then, but then it, when we hear that, we conflate that with, oh, well, it's not going to help. Yeah. But it's just a, it's a lack of knowledge. They, do, they don't know anything about food. And so they say it's not going to help, but it's just that they don't know. And that distinction of like, 
there's either proof that something can help, but if there's not proof that the person's aware of, that doesn't mean it's not going to help. Exactly. <laughs> and that to me was a huge thing to realize. Um, and, you know, we went, are we ever going to have clinical trials that is going to study the effect of kale? No. I mean, that's, we will never have evidence that demonstrates that like a diet with kale and about like, that's not going to, we might, you know, have a sort of broader diet study, but still, but that's not proof that something is not going to help you. And I think that that is, you know, I think that's a huge thing to understand. I think that's a really huge nugget uh, that you are giving our audience right now is know who has the information. Um, know who has the information and go to those people and see what they think. And I had a really good idea for you for an online course. You ready for it? Yeah. I'm kind of the person who comes up with lots of ideas like this. So, um, and my staff are like, no more ideas, Nikki. I'm like, okay, <laughs> but I do have a good one for you. Okay. So because you are trained as a journalist and you uh -huh. have the experience and knowledge as a journalist and what people need to do when they're diagnosed with an illness is they need to become a journalist. Totally. Right. Yes. They need yes. to use exactly like even just that one nugget, know who has the information. Right. So if you were to teach people how to be investigators and journalists around their health and their oh, illness. That's a great idea. Right? Yeah, become your own reporter. Yeah, exactly. And then yeah. you're going to come up with the answers that work for you. And then you can figure out even continue to be a journalist reporter and investigate. How do you implement those findings? Oh, that's such a great idea. Well, that was the thing. Like when I was, that's the thing when I was researching this, when I was writing this first writing about Shepard and, you know, we had been told by doctors, there's no evidence diet can help, blah, 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 blah. And then I do my own research and lo and behold, yeah. all study after study in Scandinavian medical journals, which oh. I guess, you know, American doctors are reading the Lancet, you know, I don't think they have a lot of time. They keep up with one or two. They keep up with the, like the big one in their specialty. Are they, they, are they reading the Scandinavian journal of rheumatology mm -hmm. or whatever it's called? No, but in the, if you, you know, there are quite a few studies out of Scandinavia, which I'm sure you're aware of demonstrating how diet affects inflammation in people with rheumatoid arthritis. And, mm -hmm. and so then to come across that and you realize, okay, just because my doctor says that there's no evidence, and it turns out actually there is very good evidence, yeah. it, that also shows you how no one has all the information. Exactly. And the idea is that we think they do, but that goes back to you have to do your own research. And, you, and, you, and because it, there's so much, we're all overwhelmed, and you actually have the time and interest um, you're going to, you know, we should all feel hopeful. Like there, there are always places to look, um, even if other people have missed things. Exactly. You know, that is an amazing place to end this, even though I want to just keep chatting with you. So we're going to do a follow-up podcast for sure. And especially, so do you have a timeline on your book or is it you're working oh, on I'm it? I'm just starting. So no, I don't. I'm okay. Well, very early I'm, stages. Well, we can chat before the book comes out as well. Um, and I will just share with you another resource, maybe potential resource for your book. Please. Did you read Brain on Fire? Oh, no, but I've been meaning to. Yeah. So she wasn't in a state where that, I mean, she definitely 
talks about the persistence that she had within, but her body was catatonic at Uh this point because of Uh the inflammation in her brain. So, but the persistence that her family members had, so her mom and dad, they would not let her be admitted into the psych ward. Oh, wow. And it was over a month where the doctors kept saying, no, she's bipolar, she's schizophrenic, she's all of these things. We don't really know what's wrong, but we're just going to admit her to the psych ward where the parents knew she'd be there permanently. Right. So they had so much persistence where they said, no, 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 you need to find the answer. We know there's an answer. And it literally came down to one neuroscience scientist in another state who I think three weeks before had come up with the antidote to this type of inflammation encephalitis in the brain. And it was, and for him, he was like, I don't know if it's going to work. I literally just came up with this and he did. They applied it and the parents just said, you know what, we have hope it's going to work. Let's just do it. Give it to her like extra strength or whatever the dose was. And they did. It took her two years to regain her ability to walk and talk again. But she went back to being a reporter and and a journalist for Times, I believe, Um, uh, or New York Times or Times. And um, she ended up publishing her story similar to what you did. And this antidote from this neuroscientist, which was only three weeks old, ended up saving hundreds of thousands of people's lives around the world. Wow. That's a great story. Yeah. Thank you for all the book recommendations. Oh my gosh. And thank you for these resources. I'm going to get in touch with uh, Sandy. Is it Newman or Newmark? Newmark. Yeah. Newmark. You'll like like him. Okay. I have to reach out to him and just to be able to be like, Hey, you're doing great work or see if he wants to be on our podcast and talk about, yeah, autism, ADHD and diet, which would be amazing. Susanna, it has been such a pleasure having you on the show again. You're my hero. I love the work you're doing. I'm so glad you're in the world. (laughs) Thank you. And you know, that feeling is so mutual. It's right back at you. You are truly a healing hero. Your son is as well. And you know, you are sharing your story, which what makes everything that you do that much more powerful. So I thank you from the bottom of my heart. And I know my guests are thanking you from the bottom of their hearts as well, especially once they listen to this and start implementing, you know, just those little nuggets that you've shared so many nuggets. So thank you. Oh, Nicolette. Thanks. I hope to talk to you soon. Yes, we are definitely going to chat again soon. So have an amazing day. Okay. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye. Welcome back, everyone. How did you enjoy that podcast with Susanna? Isn't she incredible? Isn't she inspiring? Please get her book, The Other Side of Impossible. Also, check out her news articles that have been written on her. She's been featured on Good Morning America, Fox and Friends, NPR, even in the Oprah Magazine, in the New York Times, uh, Psychology Today, BuzzFeed. I mean, this woman has been everywhere because her book is that incredible. It is definitely a must read, as BuzzFeed says. It's moving, it's inspiring, it's an amazing book, insightful, compassionate, and quite possibly life changing, is what Curtis Sittenfeld says. So please, if you love someone, share this book with them because they need to have the knowledge that's contained in the other side of impossible. Other things to know about Susanna, she was also the former senior writer for Newsweek and she's been contributing to the New York Times since 2002. As a journalist, she is brilliant. She lives with her husband and twin boys in Brooklyn and 
follow her because you're going to want to read her upcoming book on persistence so you can understand what it takes to reclaim your life, to reclaim your health, to overcome challenges, and to really use persistence and to grow persistence as a tool, as a foundation, as a standard to live by. So please follow Susanna and get to know everything about her, read her book, share it with others. So please write to us, let us know what you thought about this podcast and all of our podcasts. And again, please share this information with others because just by sharing a link, you literally can save someone's life because we're still in the era where people do not know that diet that food is related to their chronic disease and instead they keep shoving foods into their mouth that they think are healthy that they you know are labeled organic they might even be labeled vegan and gluten-free but ultimately they're just processed foods so if you know people who don't eat their vegetables who don't know that fruit is good for them who don't understand the power of whole grains not whole grains that get turned into refined flour and then made into products and put on a shelf but literally that they can cook the whole grain on a stove in their kitchen, well then they need to read Susanna's book. They also need to read our book, Eat Real to Heal. It's a simplified version of the Gerson therapy, which inspires you to do it for five weeks so that you can actually see the results of food as medicine. So get my book, Eat Real to Heal, do the program for five weeks, turn your life around, turn your health around today. And again, sign up for our nutrition and detox coaching program that we offer through the Richer Health Nutrition and Detox Wellness Center in Pemberton, British Columbia. You won't regret it. You're going to love it. It's forever going to change your life. So get more information on our website at richerhealth.ca or at thegreenmustache.com, which is G-R-E-E-N mustache, M-O-U-S-T-A-C-H-E, .com. And check out one of our cafes. We have six locations that all serve 100% organic, plant-based, unrefined, highly nutritious, and incredibly delicious food. It is so delicious. We have locations in Alberta, in Whistler, British Columbia, in North Vancouver, in Port Moody, and in Squamish. So if you're in that area, go check out one of our locations and bring somebody with you. Treat somebody to lunch, and especially someone who doesn't eat their veggies. Treat them to a gift card, bring them into one of our cafes. It will change their life, I promise you that. Even if they think that eating vegetables means that that's something that should be left to the rabbits and the birds, then um, you know what? Show them what nutritious, delicious food actually is and let them experience it at one of our cafes. And let us know what you think. Please always write to us at info at richerhealth.ca. We'd love to hear from you. And if you have a healing hero story, If you or someone you know has used food as medicine to reverse their chronic disease, please write to us, call us, let us know because we'd love to have you or that person that you know on our podcast so we can continue to share stories that change people's lives and ultimately change the world. Thanks for being with us. Eat well, be well.